0: God is worthy of our greatest affections, and this results always in the proper love of others. Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First United Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Striebeck. How did Jesus describe heaven to the disciples when he was preparing to leave? In his farewell address in John 14, do you remember? How did he take time to describe heaven? How did he paint a picture for them that they would not be forgotten and that the life they had discovered, or maybe the life that had discovered them would not be gone forever when Jesus went away in the body? He did this by saying in my father's house there are many other houses or in my father's household there are other homes there are other households and I go there now to prepare a place for you that where I am there you may be also this idea of the father's house was steeped in Israelite culture. The ancient Near East and God's people, they understood that all life centered and revolved around the father's house. The Hebrew words are Beit Av. The Beit Av was the center of society. You had the father and whoever was still alive in the family and they all lived together in a community for the betterment of their lives and the lives of those around them. The Beit Av, the father's house, kind of moves over into our time and space, and we can think of it as the entire realm or sphere over which the Father exercises leadership. Or just to make it a little more broad for all of us here, it's the entire sphere or realm over which all of us exercise leadership. For some of us that involves our home, our jobs, our schools, our relationships, our finances, the power that we have, everything that we exercise leadership over in that sense, would be considered part of our household—human <clears throat> beings, animals that make up the economic unit of the household, anything that makes the household flourish. When we kind of were going through the memorizable version of the ten words, we were trying to make it something that you could put on your fridge and talk to your kids about and help them understand what does it mean to covet your neighbor's wife. Well, if you're a five-year-old, you're like. Okay, I can only go so far with the sanctity of marriage here. What am I what relationships are we talking about? But every five-year-old and every 55-year-old and 95-year-old has some sort of covenant relationship. There's a marriage, there's a friendship, there's a working relationship, there's a parental relationship, a grandparental, I don't know if that's a word, relationship, but you have relationships where you have made covenant with someone else to live and be a certain way. And so we are, those are part of our sphere of leadership. And so when we look at not coveting anything, we get that, the stuff part, but when it comes to coveting our neighbor's covenant relationships, that's what we're talking about. Coveting, desiring unhealthily, craving a relationship that is not mine. So, broadening that, you know, again, everybody, that's a high school student, that's a third grade student, that's all of us, we all have covenant relationships. And the flow of the 10 words, the 10 commandments makes clear that it gets weightier. You know, it's weighty to covet your neighbor's horse, but it's much, much more weighty to covet your neighbor's relationships, right? People are of greater value and of more sacred worth. And so when we covet other people's people, it's more severe and it has more consequences and it takes more of us than to covet, you know, my neighbor's pickup or whatever that might be. The 10 commandments are the 10 words are bracketed by the language of household. You remember when it first began, I am the Lord, your God who brought you out of the household of slavery. And then the last word, the last commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's household. So it's bracketed. We have God, love the Lord your God, right? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's where Jesus gets that from and quoting Deuteronomy. And then we have love your neighbor as yourself. So we have God and pulling you, rescuing you out of the household of slavery, and then now loving the people in your household and not coveting your neighbor's household. So that's kind of how they're bracketed. That's how we learn. And that's where we find ourselves in the middle of the house. And it's like God is saying to the people, hey, All y'all know about how to run a household comes from where? Egypt. All you guys know about how to run a household is what you've learned from Pharaoh. And we all know that wasn't working out so well. So it's like, don't run your house like Pharaoh. I'm gonna show you how to run it. It's gonna be different. And you're gonna have this kind of mutual love and it's gonna work. But you don't covet your neighbor's house. You You keep it between the lines, here you are. So it's a great call. Uh, to not go the way of Pharaoh for those of us have leadership we all have leadership in some relationships so it's a reminder not to go the way of Pharaoh and use our influence and our blessings to you know satiate our ego or try to get more power or say well I'm gonna get what's mine but instead we learn this way of laying our life down that others lives can flourish Thomas Aquinas came along in the Middle Ages and really helped us understand we're looking at human law because by this point, we're starting to see all these connections and we can look at almost any society and the laws that are made in that society and we can make connections between God's law, divine law and our human law. But Aquinas points out, he says, look, your human law can only really govern and monitor and be aware of and punish and all that good stuff, human actions and deeds. That's as far as human law can go. A deed is committed and it's either in the law or it's outside the law and we deal with it accordingly. But God's law goes one step further and instead of only being concerned with and governing human actions and deeds, God's law governs human thoughts and the desires of our hearts. It's another way of saying God is in, he's interested in the whole person. Every dimension of humanity is part of God's territory. He's not just looking at whether what we're doing that everyone can see, but he's looking inside the heart. Now, this is not like a, hey, you better watch out because Santa Claus is watching you thing, right? I mean, you remember so we all think that. It's like, well, why does God care about what's on the inside? I mean, God clearly cares about how we treat one another and all that good stuff, but why does God care what's on the inside? What is the big deal, what's inside of my heart that no one else can see? Why does God care about the interior law. Well, this connects back to the first word of having no other gods before our God. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit get the primary territory, they get the primary allegiance. God, our God, the persons of the Trinity. We know that if we have a devoted love for God above others, above all other loves, then love for God becomes a foundation for which our house is built. And if we build our house on the foundation of a love for God, hospitality and loving others is going to be a natural result of building on the right foundation. It's just gonna work. The doors and the windows and the structure and the layout and the island in your kitchen, it's all gonna be ready to love neighbors and not turn in on ourselves. Remember the prophet Jeremiah? He reminds us that our actions originate within us. Right? It's not someone else that begins the actions that come outside of me, but the actions, my actions, begin inside me. They begin in the heart. The Proverbs talk about the heart as the wellspring of life, right? The, the actions that I act on, the, the things that I do, begin with what is inside of me. Jesus talks about this when he says, Hey, a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. You can't go to a bad tree and say, well, let's just throw some good peaches on that thing. It don't work that way. Like you gotta do the work of the root development and all that good stuff to make the tree healthy so that the tree would then bear fruit. You can't go backwards and work the other way. That's why behavior management doesn't work. That's why moralistic stuff doesn't work. Like, hey, y'all just go do better. That's why churches that preach moralistic stuff, it, they never, there's no life there. They don't grow, they're not flourishing. We don't come and realize that we've been forgiven of our sins and invited to live a new life where Jesus is filling that hole in our heart that longs for God from before we're born giving us life that we may live. So if we think of a good tree bearing good fruit, a bad tree bearing bad fruit, it's like the good heart makes the good household, where a covetous heart makes a household that's deprived. There are people in the household that don't have things that they need because of a bad heart. We see it all the time. And so covetousness or inordinate craving or whatever word you want to use it makes the tree of our hearts unhealthy, right? It begins to just deteriorate the roots You think of it like a fungus or anything else. Our hearts become unhealthy. The tree becomes unhealthy and the fruit that we produce then is either non-existent or it's not what it's supposed to be. That's the bad news. The good news is And the 10 words are setting us up to remember and to believe that the gospel, that I am the Lord your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt and Jesus coming along saying, I'm giving my life for you. The gospel doesn't just stop with, hey, believe in Jesus and punch your ticket to heaven. The gospel includes the full transformation of the human person. That's what sanctification is all about. When you see that in the scriptures and we hear that theological concept, it's no, there's no corner of my humanity that is unable to be redeemed by God. It's not like we just get right with God somehow and then we're just left to manage our lives for the rest of our life and just kind of struggle along. But we have access to this great power that is called the righteousness of Christ where the righteousness of Jesus through the cross actually becomes our righteousness. And it's not like a blanket that covers us so that we can't see what's really in there, but it's a righteousness that begins to work its way to the core of our being, and then the outgrowth is righteous. It's not because we just got smart and better one day, it's because we got closer to Christ, and that righteousness was welling up inside of us, and it was changing who we were. And we begin to desire different things, and we begin to desire better old things. And there's a transformation at play. Again, why is coveting or craving what belongs to my neighbor such a destructive practice? Like, why is that such a big deal? I mean, most of the time you don't even see it happening. So what is the big problem? I mean, let's be honest, okay? If I covet my neighbor's wife, my neighbor's wife's probably never going to know about it. 99 times out of 100. Like there are times where it comes to that, but most of the time, the neighbor's wife's not gonna know. But you know who does know and who it is going to hurt? My wife. My wife. If we covet our neighbor's kids' activities and abilities, it hurts our kids' activities and abilities. If we covet our neighbor's job, it hurts our job. If we covet our neighbor's fill in the blank. You can have everything from the most meaningful thing you've ever thought of to I covet my neighbors, you know, COVID quarantine existence because it's better than mine or whatever. But you, we fill in the blank and it hurts our opportunities to do that. And. Pastors and church leaders are the worst, by the way. I know it's the world that I kind of work in, so I see it, but we're awful. You're pastors all the time, man. If I just had, you know, if I had that church over there, and I had their budget and I had their staff and I had their stuff, man, we would really be doing some damage for the kingdom. And you hear all the time, man, if we had, boy, if we had their sanctuary, if we had their AV equipment, if we had their volunteer base, if we had, right, we do it all the time, then, then we would really have arrived. And that's all fine and good, except it robs us from the gifts that God has given us. And we look around and we totally miss it. And we realize, oh my gosh, we are so thoroughly blessed. And we hold in our hands this great potential, but we missed it because all we could see was everybody else's. Here's how it works. We all know that we're busy. We say it all the time. Gosh, people just seem busier than they used to be, and we don't have time for this or that. We're busy, we're short on time, we're short on resources, we're short on fill in the blank. The point is our energy and our time is limited. And so if we use the limited time and energy that we do have to covet and crave and desire what belongs to someone else, then that is time and energy and life that is taken away from loving my neighbor. If I spend all my time coveting my neighbor's wife, then I don't, then I'm taking away time that I should be using to love my wife. And on down the line for all of our meaningful relationships. We covet someone else's friendships. Those are moments and energy from our heart that we could be using to catch up with an old friend and figure out how we can be a better friend to them, our friends. Time spent coveting blank equals time taken away from loving blank. Uh, works the same way all down the line. Friendships, colleagues, Et and it's not just a one-to-one time loss, okay? There's the time, that's one thing. So if I'm engaged in some sort of coveting, you know, series of moments, and that's, let's just say it's, you know, 30 seconds or 30 minutes, it's not just that it's 30 seconds or 30 minutes that I could have been loving somebody, but it's also shrinking my heart. Remember the, you know, the image of the Grinch, or you think of Ebenezer Scrooge, like the heart is actually getting smaller. The, the ability to love is decreasing. And the imagination is getting stifled, right? Where we see it with the effects of the necessary technology that we use all the time, like our imagination is changing. The way we think is changing. The scenarios that we are able to imagine and figure out are changing. And so virtue, what virtue does and the fruit of the spirit when it's had, when we're walking in step with the Holy Spirit, virtue is growing our heart. It's increasing our capacity and ability and desire to love and vice in this case coveting or envying uh, is actually is, sh- is shrinking it's contracting uh, it's making that muscle smaller that ability smaller to love and this may not be the best you know there's lots of great analogies for this that you can think of but one of my favorite children's stories is the three billy goats gruff Y'all, y'all remember that one? It, it is your duty as a grandparent or a parent or a just friend to read that story and read it well. And I mean, you have to get the trip trap of the bridge. You have to make them think that they can hear, they can feel the moving of the bridge. It's like a suspension bridge, right? And the, you gotta make them imagine the troll and how awful he is. This is like the incarnation of evil, the troll, right? And, and we're just imagining the worst thing we can imagine. And the story is, you know, the billy goats are looking for some better pastures, So the youngest one goes across the bridge and the troll hops up there and he says, hey, you know, I'm the troll. This is my territory. You can't cross over here and eat the grass because I'm going to eat you and I can do that. And the the young Billy Goat, he's smart. And he says, well, hey, troll, um, I know that you're a covetous creature and you just want more. So check it out. My older, more tasty, you know, goat brothers are behind me. And if you'll just wait, you'll have a much better meal. If you just let me on by. And you think about it from the perspective of the troll, like in hindsight, you're going troll, you had a goat to eat and you gave it up, you know, and by the end of the story, he's perished. He's either floating down the river in the nice children's books, or he's totally in oblivion in the old ones. You know, he's, he's gone. He's dead. Uh, but it just, whatever story, there are so many children's stories and fairy tales that pick up on this, that when we begin coveting and craving things, it takes away what we actually do have. Sorry if I botched the Billy Goat story, but it's, you know, it's just one that's, that's in there. It's a, it's a good one. Uh, evil craves what is next, and what is next, and what is next, and what might be mine, and it totally misses what's here. The virtue that is most often associated with this kind of recovery work is the virtue of temperance. And I know when we think temperance, we always think like 1920s, you know, temperance movement. Uh, but we're not talking about the temperance movement. Uh, temperance deals with anything that relates to pleasure, right? The five senses recognizes that hey, we have these great desires and these great senses that God has given us, and we do long for pleasure, and that's a really good thing. But temperance comes along and it and it makes those desires, it makes them chaste. It makes us able to receive them in proper fashion, and it doesn't disrupt this whole household and economy, and it makes it work. So it gives us a proper desire for pleasure, and this is a good thing to cultivate. So this is something to pray for. Lord, give me temperance, right? Grow in me the kind of temperance that could withstand these things and love the people that I'm supposed to love well. Because what would it look like if my marriage, if your marriage was stronger at this point next year than it is today? What would it look like if my friendships were stouter this time next year than they are today? What if my relationship with my kids was deeper and more open this time next year than it is today? What if my community grew in fill in the blank because of a part that I played if more kids who are in need had what they need and we were a part of that so how do we get there i mean that's the vision is to love god and love others well to not get tripped up on the coveting train but how do we do that what does it look like what's the positive dimension of do not covet do not inordinately crave I think the answer to that question shows up in Galatians 5, in the passage that Ken read for us. What happens when the Holy Spirit is given full reign in our lives and begins to work out, and we begin to participate with that life? Paul says, you know, he he says, life in the Spirit, you know, you got to live this way. He says, don't gratify the desires of the flesh don't don't give them what they're asking for instead give your heart to the spirit and then the spirit begins to work in the heart and give birth to all this beautiful stuff to bear all this wonderful fruit because it's not about you know like well you know I see this list of the fruit of the spirit and we learn those and I'm more of a patience person but not so much of a joy person or whatever no it's all of them We get all of them. If we walk in the spirit, we get all all of those should be present. If you see all those things, you know someone's walking in the spirit. That's the test. It's not whether they, you know, can quote the Bible passages, not whether they're speaking in tongues or whatever. That's all great. But it's if you see the fruit of the spirit, then you know that person is walking in the Holy Spirit. That's the test. Paul says there's no law against these things because when we belong to Jesus, we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And so, it's a moving forward. It's not just, you know, behavior management and let's try not to do this. Let's, but let's engage, let's move forward, let's keep in step with the Spirit. And I think what happens when we do that, that is, is a corollary, it's, it's an opposite of the coveting, is this thing called contentment. We arrive at this place of being content, of having appreciation for God and those around us. And we can even appreciate our neighbor's stuff and our neighbor's relationships. It doesn't mean don't observe and appreciate the beautiful things around you. My goodness. No, we can appreciate our neighbor's stuff and our neighbor's relationships. But that's different than craving them for ourselves. And so when we arrive at this place of contentment and appreciation... Paul says this in in Timothy. He says, you know, godliness with contentment is great gain. To be godly and to be content with that and whatever you've got, that's great gain in life. I mean, we spend all of our lives trying to gain, wanting more and wanting more. He's like, that is, if you can gain that, you've gained a lot. The psalmist says, you know, in Psalm 31, exclaims, "Uh, my soul is quieted. My soul is like a weaned child with its mother. Like my soul is calmed down, is content, is in a good place. I can be around people and not freak out. I can not inordinately desire whatever, but I'm, I'm there, I'm content. So we begin to open doors for the Spirit, and we practice solitude. You know, we're still, and we allow our imagination to focus on Christ and It leads us into prayer and bringing ourselves to God and imagining what God would bring into our lives. And then we monitor, you know, what's going into my heart all the time? What's going into my imagination? What kind of books am I reading? What kind of stuff am I watching? What kind of articles am I filling my mind with and my imagination? What are the friendships like? This power, this great power, it comes from God. And we surrender more and more of ourselves to a life in the Spirit. We walk one step after the other, trying to keep in step with the Spirit. And it's a reminder that God is worthy of our greatest affections. God is worthy of our greatest affections, and this results always in the proper love of others. And then the gratitude for gifts and people and relationships in our household is what will follow. And this will bring the the exact joy, the exact peace, the exact contentment that Paul is talking about and that Jesus is reminding us of as we seek to live uh, this life that God has called us to. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.